Mintcast, an interview series featuring dissenting voices the establishment would rather silence. I'm your host, Winar Mohawish Adley. To help us continue these interviews, you can become a member on our Patreon page, which we will link in the video below. Now, Edward Snowden has called it the story of the year. An Israeli spying company has been caught selling software to authoritarian regimes who have used it to surveil more than 50,000 people worldwide. And on that list include many leading investigative journalists, as well as, as well as heads of state, including French President Emmanuel Macron, Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan, and President of Iraq, Barham Saleh. But the Israeli cyber spying industry goes far beyond what was revealed earlier this week. Investigative journalist Whitney Webb has just published another article with Mint Press about a much more worrying piece of Israeli software that makes Pegasus look tame by comparison. Now, Whitney is here today to talk to me about this. She's a writer and researcher for her own outlet, Unlimited Hangout, and a contributor to The Last American Vagabond. Between 2017 and 2020, she was also a senior investigative reporter for Mint Press. Welcome back, Whitney. Great to be on. Thanks for having me. So first, um, I would like to get your reaction to the news about this Pegasus leak that dropped on Sunday and is continuing to come out each day uh, now. What parts of the story really struck you and what do you think is not being covered by the mainstream corporate media? Okay, so the abuse of the Pegasus software by NSO Group clients is nothing new. Uh, we've known about this in a big way since at least, 28, since at least 2018, um, when Amnesty International and the Canadian group called Citizen Lab uh, became very vocal about it. And then at the time, also Edward Snowden, who you just mentioned, uh, was very vocal about it at the time. Uh, there was another controversy with NSO Group a year later uh, regarding um, a hack uh, or a, a hacking tool that they had developed that was targeting WhatsApp, uh, the popular messaging service. Uh, so this is something that um, has brought NSO Group notoriety over the years and has even led uh, potential purchasers of their company, uh, like the Blackstone Group, to back out after outrage. So the abuse of Pegasus software by governments, including authoritarian governments, um, around the world is something that's been known for a long time. So that isn't really the new part of the revelations, but you know, just because of the crazy news cycle, especially in the last year and a half, some people may have forgotten or may not heard, may not have heard of it on those previous, um, those previous occasions. Um, the interesting thing I would say about these revelations is that it is the scope that we now know of in terms of um, this list that was acquired by Amnesty International and this, this French nonprofit that was then given to a variety of media outlets who were covering this. Um, uh, it's a, about 50,000 people are on the list, including, as you mentioned, several heads of state journalists, uh, human rights activists, dissidents, and, and whatnot. So um, I think, you know, we've known before that it's been used to spy on people. Um, I think the, the it's the scope here, the sheer number of people that are now admitted to have been targeted with the software by a variety of, of governments and regimes is, is what is being, what is essentially uh, new here, as well as the fact that, you know, uh, heads of state are, uh, you know, now confirmed, at least some of them, uh, to have been targeted with this software. So um, one thing, uh, there's several things that aren't being covered here. Um, one is that NSO Group and Pegasus is just one product of what is sometimes referred to as the lawful intercept market, which are essentially offensive hacking tools uh, that are sold to 
to different clients around the world. It, 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 they don't have a monopoly on that market. So there are other products that do similar things. And so like, for example, Edward Snowden and his recent comments on this case has called for that entire uh, brand of products to be outlawed in its entirety, but that message has not been picked up by mainstream media. Another thing that's been very obvious, a very glaring omission by mainstream media is the mention that NSO Group was founded by veterans of the Israeli Military Signal Intelligence Unit, Unit 8200, um, and that uh, aspects of that company have enduring ties to the Israeli national security state, as well as the fact that Israel's Ministry of Defense has some responsibility for the sale of Pegasus to all of these governments because they licensed the sale of NSO Group software uh, as an Israeli company uh, in, this, in this particular field to those governments. And without that approval, that those sales would not have been able to take place. So uh, Israel has essentially been absolved, um, <laughs> at least the Israeli state and intelligence service has been absolved of this, but this is pretty significant when you consider that Unit 8200 um, is basically like the NSA uh, of the US or GCHQ, in the UK, they're well known to abuse their surveillance capabilities, uh, specifically in the in occupied Palestine, uh, where they're known to blackmail people. They, of course, claim publicly that it's to prevent terrorism and crime and stuff like that. But um, numerous documented cases of them using it uh, just to persecute people for their political beliefs or for their activism, or in an attempt to weaken uh, Palestinian society and turn it against itself. And there have actually been veterans of that unit that have refused to go along uh, with those abuses. So that's one of the reasons that we know about them. Uh, but the fact that, that you know this is being omitted as part of this major scandal, I think is pretty significant. Absolutely. And we're going to talk more about Unit 8200. Um, and also, I'm curious to know about the people, the veteran intelligence people that refused to participate in uh, this sort of uh, spyware. Can you talk more about them? Um, well, it, it happened several years ago. It was several veterans um, from Unit 8200 that basically came out and it was reported on Israeli media and to a lesser extent in international media, um, openly saying that, uh, you know, um, Unit 8200 was engaging in blackmail against uh, civilian Palestinians not suspected of a crime uh, for uh, purposes that they thought were immoral uh, and called for like an ethics committee to be established, among other things. Uh, it's not clear if that actually ever happened. Probably not. Um, but it, 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 it uh, for the time, I forget exactly what year it took place, was in the last couple of years, uh, did break into the, the media for a little bit. So, you know, th this is a documented practice uh, that has even been admitted by, by former members in such a public way who came out and demanded the government change its tactics. Right. And so for all the press coverage that Pegasus is getting, another product possibly uh, far more worrying called Toka which you have uh, just written a very impressive and lengthy investigation on Mint Press News, has received almost no attention. Um, now, if you're watching this, please go to mintpressnews.com and where you, where you can find um, Whitney's investigation. But can you tell us what exactly is TOCA and why do you claim it is worse than Pegasus? So Toka is the company. So like they're the equivalent of NSO Group, right? They're another Israeli spyware company. Um, but yes, they haven't gotten any attention at all. And we don't even actually know the name of their products. They claim that they can uh, essentially develop software 
from scratch to hack any device that their clients ask them to, their clients being expressly foreign governments, law enforcement agencies, and intelligence agencies um, around the world. So uh, their clientele is very similar uh, uh, to NSO Group uh, in terms of Pegasus in, in that sense. Um, but what's concerning about TOCA is that they openly admit that they work very closely with Israeli intelligence services and the Israeli military to quote unquote enhance their products. Whereas the NSO group uh, publicly anyway is a uh, private company with no overt ties to the Israeli national security state. TOCA uh, admits to having those uh, direct and, and persisting ties from its founding in 2018 to the present. We also don't know the extent to which uh, these sales have been taking place and they also offer to essentially design um, offensive cyber strategies um, and services for these same uh, clients that they service, which are essentially foreign, foreign governments as well. And basically any government that's deemed friendly to Israel can be a customer, but they have openly said that they uh, will not be offering their services to countries that they deem enemies. And on that list, according to their CEO at the time, it was Russia and China, he named directly, but we can assume, of course, that would include Iran, uh, probably Syria um, and, and various um, you know, uh, governments around the world that have um, that are either very supportive of Palestine have declined to normalize relations with Israel, among other things. So it's essentially has the potential. We can talk about this later. It appears it has been uh, weaponized to be an instrument of, of Israeli foreign policy to a certain degree as well. Um, so in terms of its capabilities itself, besides purporting to be able to hack any device, they have a, a special focus, they admit, on Internet of Things devices and, uh, and essentially any uh, consumer electronic device. So in the case of Pegasus software, this targets expressly smartphone devices um, in a variety of ways. Basically, through Pegasus, you can gain access to anything on someone's phone, and you can also uh, remotely uh, record their phone calls, uh, turn on the microphone to make recordings or the camera to do so. Uh, Toka has uh, their products have all of these capabilities, but not just with smartphones, with any device and not even limited to smartphones or computers. Uh, they, they say, um, you know, even connected fridges, um, uh, uh, Amazon Echoes, Google Nest products, anything connected to uh, the internet, essentially, uh, including alarms in people's homes, um, they can, they can um, you know, uh, give their clients access to these devices and allow them also to be uh, manipulated in the case of internet um, uh, of things. Things devices, and this is also very concerning because they openly market their software as a, to be used in covert operations, meaning that in the case of like the alarms, for example, if there was a covert operation to take place by one of these clients, they can disable the alarm system. Um, of a residence of someone they want to raid and then go in undetected or something like that, and you know their sales pitch um, is very similar to NSO Group sales pitch. Uh, for Pegasus that, oh, this is only sold uh, to governments to go after terrorists uh, and to go after serious criminals and all of this. But of course, we know uh, from this recent scandal that that is hardly the case once this gets in the, into the hands um, of these foreign governments and foreign intelligence agencies. It's, it's consistently and systematically abused. Um, so it's very likely that TOCA software will be the case. Uh, well, it experiences, you know, it's the same situation because you're giving essentially unlimited power to spy on people. And of course, you know, as I've covered in my work on, on Jeffrey Epstein, uh, 
blackmail is really the currency of a lot of these intelligence agencies. It's been used by, you know, as we just talked about, Israel's own signal intelligence agency. Um, so, you know, the potential for that is, is also um, very concerning as well. Um, and so, you know, the keeping the discussion expressly focused on NSO group um, prevents us from talking about how this market in its entirety um, is a major problem. But TOCA, I think, is one specifically deserving uh, of attention because it has direct ties to a government is selling the same product that goes even farther than Pegasus does. We don't know its client list of governments. Uh, because they don't say so, but they actively market their services uh, to uh, the government of, of the United States, uh, to France. They're currently uh, trying to get more involved with uh, developing countries uh, for various reasons. Um, and they have a partnership with the uh, the World Bank and the Inter-American Development Bank uh, to do that. So uh, this is definitely um, a company that I think deserves people's attention. Okay, so you talked about a lot of things here that I, I want to break it down a little bit into <laughs> simplified terms so the average person can understand the significance of this. Um, and we'll get, uh, you know, <laughs> we're going to get to all, all of those aspects, but let's break it down one, one by one, okay? First, I want to know how this affects the average person. I mean, we know that this is being used uh, to target journalists. Uh, human rights activists, um, even heads of state, like you laid out, um, does this affect the average person with their smartphone? Well, it, it potentially could because we don't know. So right on, on this list of 50,000 people, only a few of those have been identified that have come right. out. So we don't really know uh, how far this goes. And of course, if you consider a current U.S. policy with regard to their domestic terror strategy and this pivot towards domestic extremism, um, that strategy very heavily relies on uh, electronic communications, social media, things like that, uh, including communications that are stored on a smartphone. It talks about targeting encryption, which is, you know, what Pegasus and this other software offers a workaround for. Um, so it can very easily be abused on a wider scale in governments around the world, not just the United States. Um, are gearing up to do that if they aren't already doing it. And for people that think that the Biden administration's domestic terror policy, as they publicly claim, is going to be expressly focused on white supremacists, I would encourage you to actually go and read the text of the strategy itself, because therein it says that the people they consider extremists or anyone they deem to be anti-authority, anti-government, as well as people who oppose capitalism, which, of course, in the history of the United States, uh, you know, they will easily apply that to uh, socialists if they wish. Um, and, you know, once this type of uh, infrastructure is established, let's say a Republican gets an office, they could easily weaponize it against their political opponents. Um, you know, it, it, once you have the infrastructure established, it's very hard to remove once it's there. Um, and so these are the types of tools that basically gut any sort of privacy enhancing technologies that are available to consumers. And since we're living in this context of, of wide ranging surveillance and abuse of that surveillance, especially in the United States in the post 9-11 era, and with this uh, new uh, signaling from the U.S. government, that they're going to step it up even further. I think this is something that should concern everyone. Absolutely. And, and, that, and that's what I was going to ask about next is how will this be used and weaponized against dissent um, and any sort of person who opposes, you know, capitalist ideologies, neoliberalism, uh, war policies? How is this going to affect um, independent journalists like myself or yourself? And so I think that makes 
um, a lot of sense. So um, my next question for you to also break down that explanation that you gave is how how is Israel using um, these spyware softwares uh, to weaponize uh, um, their agenda and to also uh, push their foreign policy around the world? Okay, so there's there's two different angles uh, through which Israel's government and national security state attempt to leverage their cybersecurity um, and high tech sector. Um, one involves uh, basically uh, proliferating the presence of companies founded by veterans of the Israeli national security state, um, having them embedded in larger multinational or acquired by multinational corporations, having them contract. Um, to, to foreign governments or to powerful entities in different countries and, and whatnot as a way to directly counter uh, boycott divest sanctions uh, in such a way that um, it, it, various countries become so reliant on uh, technology produced uh, by either veterans or previously produced and then commercialized by the Israeli national security state that they will be unable uh, to boycott Israel um, in its in its entirety, and Israel has uh, in Netanyahu when he was in power expressly, you know, uh, said that this was part of Israel's cyber strategy as a way to combat BDS. Um, and then you have uh, people uh, from APAC and and uh, Netanyahu's top economic advisor partner with the neocon billionaire in the U.S. Paul Singer to create something called Startup Nation Central. That's uh, uh, was expressly founded on that idea to combat BDS as a way of getting uh, U.S. companies to acquire. Israeli companies for that explicit purpose. So in the context of Startup Nation Central, this isn't exclusively technology companies, but it does have a focus on them. Um, the other policy that people need to be aware of started, uh, as far as we know, in terms of you know what they've admitted, uh, started the same year that Startup Central was created, but it has, it's slightly different. So if it's okay, I'll just read from this article. Um, because it was covered in Israeli media um, in 2018. It didn't get any coverage in international media, but it is honestly uh, quite scandalous. And it's based on interviews with high ranking former and current Israeli military and intelligence officials. Uh, the article passed through the Israeli military censor, uh, which prevented them from naming some of the individuals even that gave on record interviews um, in some of the companies involved. But because of that, we know that this is essentially an, an admitted policy because it, it was approved for publication by the Israeli military itself. So it was published in, in Calculus Tech, and it opens as follows. It says Israel is siphoning cyber-related activities from its national defense apparatus to privately held companies. Since 2012, cyber-related and intelligence products that were previously carried out in-house in the Israeli military and Israel's main intelligence arms are transferred to companies that in some cases were built for this exact purpose. The description of the processes that took place in Israel in recent years presented in the following article, um, oh, I already said that, sorry, are based on all these um, interviews with high-ranking officials, uh, people at cybersecurity and intelligence companies as Israel's Ministry of Defense held since 2017. So essentially what they're admitting there is that um, since 2012, companies um, in this particular sector in Israel um, are basically conducting operations uh, that were previously conducted by groups like Mossad, uh, Shin Bet, uh, or Unit 8200, uh, essentially operating as fronts for Israeli intelligence. Um, of course, because this article prevents any of them from being named, we don't know. Um, 
exactly what those companies are, but the uh, proliferation of, of um, um, tech companies founded by Unit 8200 veterans after that year um, is quite concerning. And for example, one of these companies that I wrote about uh, for Mint Press in January of last year, Cyber Reason, uh, their Unit 8200 veteran co-founder and CEO uh, openly describes his work at Cyber Reason as being a, quote, continuation of his time at Unit 8200. And when he was at Unit 8200, he led offensive hacking operations against nation states. Um, so that's quite significant. And Cyber Reason is uh, currently uh, its software is being run on uh, U.S. government computers, including for the U.S. military. I think that should be uh, quite uh, significant. You know, if we really are concerned about the use of Israeli spyware, why not talk about this company? Why is it just being uh, limited? Uh, to NSO group. So basically, um, you have two different angles here. You have Israel saying that it wants to use these tech companies explicitly with the purpose of countering uh, Palestine, uh, solidarity, solidarity with Palestine around the world, and also using them to conduct um, classified intelligence and defense operations, but they're operating publicly as, as private companies, some of them with no obvious ties necessarily to the Israeli national security state, but this honestly um, requires investigations of any government into any um, sort of uh, cyber security or, or technology company that, that fits this bill. And so a lot of companies, as I mentioned, you know, we mentioned earlier how NSO Group was created by veterans of Unit 8200. Cyber Reason is one. There's tons of these companies. Uh, Microsoft's entire uh, cl cloud structure for its Azure cloud is based off of one company founded by a Unit 8200 uh, graduate, Asaf Ravaport. His company was Adalon and was acquired by them. And they uh, nearly had uh, the contract to run the entire cloud for the Pentagon recently. It's amazing there's no discussion of this. And this is very concerning when you consider past incidents with um, with Israel trying to uh, actually attacking a U.S. naval ship in order to blame it on a on an Arab country and get Arab uh, get the U.S. into into a war that Israel wanted back with the USS Liberty incident and also uh, historic uh, Israeli espionage cases that targeted the U.S. government, including classified installations like the Promise Software scandal or the espionage. Um, that took place with the Jonathan Pollard affair uh, in the 1980s, or honestly, uh, you know, you also have the situation with Israeli tech companies, Amdocs and Converse Infosys, uh, which were the subject of actually a mainstream media investigation um, in the aftermath of 9-11 for basically having this massive spiring targeting federal in installations throughout the late 90s and the early 2000s. So this is obviously something that there should be concern about. And even relatively recently um, with the Trump administration, there were accusations uh, from high-ranking government officials that uh, in, in these devices were discovered, these Stingray devices that were sucking up all of this data from smartphones of people working at the White House. Um, those were linked to Israel as well, but no investigation was launched. Of course, if you're familiar with Trump's uh, relationship with Israel, it's no surprise as to why that wasn't investigated. Uh, but this, uh, by all appearances, uh, you know, it, it, they don't really seem... Uh, to necessarily be behaving as the ally that people in the U.S. are often told. And it was actually from the Snowden leaks as, leaks as well uh, that there was a document produced saying that Israel is the most aggressive spy agency targeting the U.S. after Russia and China ahead of Iran and a lot of uh, North Korea and a lot of other countries that are, you know, uh, have a more adversarial relationship with the United States. So all of this is really significant. And the fact that they're openly admitting that these companies are being used as fronts for different, oper uh, for different operations 
is, is completely insane. And this admitted, uh, you know, we have the anti-BDS laws in the U.S., but we also have this, this tech angle uh, to Israel's government's efforts to, to target BDS, which is, um, you know, a huge violation of the First Amendment being actively done through means of espionage and, uh, and other means uh, to target, you know, the First Amendment rights of Americans. It's, it's honestly very scandalous. And a lot of what you have just talked about with Cyber Reason um, and uh, the other organization um, and breaking this down with about Israel's national security state intersecting with that of the United States. Um, you just did another interview with Loki, which can also be found um, on our YouTube channel. Um, so I, you know, I want to talk more about the World Bank. You mentioned that at the very beginning. Um, in your article about TOCA, you break down how um, organizations like the World Bank and the Inter-American Development Bank are helping in the fight against Palestine and those that seek its liberation. I, I know you talked about the targeting of BDS, but can you break down how the World Bank is more specifically being used in this? Yeah, so the World Bank partnered with Israel, um, as did the Inter-American Bank. Uh, they both had existing partnerships before, but there's a particular partnership with those both banks, uh, both of those banks that took place in 2019. And according to uh, Haaretz, the Israeli media outlet that's, uh, I think, one of Israel's oldest media outlets and, and most prestigious, um, they said that those contracts were part of an interministerial committee that was created by Netanyahu in 2019 uh, with the uh, uh, that was planned. Uh, the purpose of it was to, quote, realize the potential of international development to strengthen the Israeli economy, improve Israel's political standing and strengthen its international role, end quote. And one of the sources they cite in there, uh, who was, uh, according to them, chose to remain anonymous, but was directly uh, very close to this entire undertaking, he said, quote, uh, development banks are a way to help advance Israel's interests and agenda in the developing world, including Latin America, but it's not philanthropy. And of course, um, in the case of TOCA, what we've seen uh, a year after those partnerships were forged is World Bank funded projects choosing TOCA uh, to uh, work directly with the government of Chile. And then in the case of the Inter-American Bank having financing uh, TOCA to work directly uh, with the government of Nigeria. And these are the, uh, if you go on TOCA's website, as I mentioned earlier, they have lot, they make lots of sales, but they're not public. And these are the only uh, I guess, uh, clientele that they actively promote. Uh, and they sort of promote it as these sort of philanthropic cases. But as uh, as Haaretz noted, they're not philanthropic at all. They're aimed at something else. And this is important in the context of um, the use of the Israeli state in, in these contexts I mentioned earlier, uh, specifically, uh, you know, uh, efforts to target BDS, because, you know, it, it's, it, it seems to me anyway, and, you know, people are welcome to, dis to, to disagree, but it seems like it's no coincidence that they would choose these two countries first among the developing world, because Nigeria historically has shown uh, solidarity with Palestine. Uh, it is uh, specifically in the last 10 years, except for one incident in 2014, where they abstained from an important uh, vote at the UN. But even uh, aside from their government, in terms of Nigeria's population, uh, very significant and, and important solidarity for Palestine is shown there on a regular basis, not just when Israel commits uh, obvious war crimes that get international attention in terms of the invasion of Gaza um, and, and, and things like that. 
So, um, and, and of course, in the context of Chile, uh, Chile has the largest uh, Palestinian community uh, outside of the Middle East. It has arguably the strongest BDS movement in the entire Americas. Um, and actually cities in Chile were declaring uh, boycotts of Israel at the municipal level and at the local level. Uh, but then the, the current government, the far right government of Sebastián Piñera stepped in and said, no, this has to be implemented at the federal level. But there's actually like a Palestine, Palestinian caucus in Chile's Congress uh, that since 2018 has been drafting laws to institute a, a national level uh, boycott of goods produced in Israeli settlements. Um, and the most recent effort for that took place just this past June. Um, so now with Toka's involvement in this, um, you know, it's it's uh, it's questionable how far that will actually end up going, uh, the more their services and their products become uh, intermeshed uh, with uh, the government and, and the security agencies. Um, of Chile. And there's one thing that we didn't really get into quite yet exactly who is behind TOCA, uh, but it's very important to point out that this is the only tech company ever founded by former prime minister of Israel, Ehud Barak. Um, some people may remember during the Epstein scandal that Ehud Barak, of course, because of his close association with Epstein, his visits to his island, his visit to Epstein apartment, Epstein-owned apartment complexes um, that housed underage girls where Ehud Barak would spend the night and things like this. Of course, he got a lot of attention there, but also was the fact that Ehud Barak was the chairman and the leading investor in this company called Carbine 911, in which Epstein had also invested that was also focused specifically on U.S. law enforcement agencies and emergency call services. So there was an overlap there and did have very uh, concerning surveillance potential. Um, but he didn't found that company. So um, he founded TOCA in 2018. And of course, if you're familiar with Ehud Barak's history, aside from the Epstein scandal, he's a former head of Israeli military intelligence. He's former minister of defense when Operation Cast Lead took place, uh, targeting the Gaza Strip in 2009. That revolt, uh, you know, white, the chemical weapons were used against Palestinian civilians. Uh, over a, th a thousand Palestinians were killed. In contrast to like uh, 12 or, or 11 uh, Israeli deaths, and several deaths of, uh, of Israelis were actually due to friendly fire or not to Palestinians at all, um, and has been, you know, he's essentially a war criminal himself. So this is really his company. Um, and uh, given, you know, the fact of with the Epstein scandal, the blackmail, the espionage uh, connections there, and also uh, his ties, Ehud Barak's ties to promoting the services of Black Cube to people like Harvey Weinstein uh, to target uh, you know, victims of, of sexual assault of his and, and things like that. You know, this is not a guy with moral scruples. Um, I really want to stress that and has it, it has associated with, with someone like Epstein, who was an intelligence asset acquiring blackmail uh, for uh, different states as well as for his own personal gain. Um, so, Obviously, this is cause for concern when it relates to Toka. And then if you look at the other people that are employed by this company, it's like the former head of all cyber activity at the IDF, including for Unit 8200, um, very high ranking um, Israeli um, military intelligence officials or people that develop the cyber strategy or offensive 
tools specifically for Netanyahu's office when he was prime minister and things like that. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, they work directly with Israeli intelligence agencies. Um, and they're part of this, I guess, 2019 agenda, as I mentioned earlier, uh, to use uh, development banks as a way to advance Israel's uh, political agenda in, in foreign countries. You know, this is a different type of scandal. Right. from what you know it, we're seeing with the nso group and pegasus but no mainstream media outlet um has touched it and i actually uh for mint press and as the third installment of my series on cyber reason i mentioned toka um and there was of course no interest in looking any further there of course i would like to think uh maybe that will change uh, but given mainstream uh, media's uh, avoidance of the issue of Israel's government or uh, Unit 8200 in its entirety in relation to this uh, recent, uh, you know, these re recent revelations about Pegasus, I am a little doubtful. But I think this just uh, speaks to the larger problem of this market in its entirety and how Israel has tried to position itself at the front of that market and is obviously weaponizing it uh, to go after uh, political dissent, people who criticize its policies and it, it, not just its policies, but it's, you know, it, even its flagrant violations of international law. Absolutely. I mean, it's very clear that these are not just private endeavors. These are companies that that the Israeli apartheid state is outsourcing to do its dirty work to promote its foreign policy and target um, dissent. I wanna talk a little bit more about cyber reason um, in your investigation, um, which you actually wrote another investigation for Mint Press about cyber reason. You just did a very uh, wonderful interview with Loki and explained this as well. Who are cyber reason and what were they doing being employed to run doomsday scenarios for the 2020 election featuring, um, you know, martial law being declared in the United States. Yeah, so Cyber Reason first got my attention, um, I think it was in November of 2019, a year before the 2020 election, because they were running these very odd simulations with DHS, uh, the U.S. Secret Service, um, at their offices, their U.S. offices in Boston, uh, where they were essentially simulating cyber attacks against U.S. critical infrastructure um, and things like that, and seeing how um, law enforcement personnel in the U.S. were uh, responding to those events and things like that. Um, and, you know, they have a very controversial uh, background. As I mentioned earlier, the guy who runs it, Lior Div, says that his work at Cyber Reason is, is a continuation of his time in Unit 8200. I don't think it could be any more blatant in terms of, of these policies. So why is Israeli intelligence conducting those things? Um, and specifically simulations about U.S. electoral chaos and things like that. And of course, the 2020 election was quite chaotic, um, but not necessarily in the same way that Cyber Reason had simulated. Um, but there were also other hints from not just uh, this company, but within the U.S. intelligence community that something in the 2020 election uh, was going to create a huge explosion. And it was, of course, uh, part of this broader pivot towards domestic terror that preceded the 2020 election. Of course, we've seen it since, you know, with January 6th, and all of that, how that has turned out um, in terms of the policies now now being implemented. Uh, but cyber reason is it has there's a lot of reason to be concerned about them. One of the reasons is that one of their main uh, partners is Lockheed Martin, uh, which is a major U.S. weapons manufacturer, of course, and also previously provided a lot of IT services uh, to the U.S. 
and Cyber Reason software uh, ran on every, was integrated into every Lockheed Martin IT product. Um, and, and of course, that branch of Lockheed Martin has since been acquired by Litos, but Litos is the biggest provider of IT services to the US, US government as a whole. And they continue uh, to use Cyber Reason products. Um, it's been said for years that the type of software that Cyber Reason sells, their cybersecurity software, that same model of software, uh, for in terms of it being weaponized with backdoors, is, is very common. This has been admitted in places like the New York Times and things like that. The U.S. Uh, is, Israeli um, intelligence has a history of using front companies to do exactly that. Uh, with the Promise software scandal where Robert Maxwell sold backdoor software um, to intelligence agencies all over the world, as well as the classified U.S. National Laboratory so Israel could illicitly spy on the U.S. nuclear program um, during that period of time in the pursuit of its own undeclared uh, but known at this point nuclear program. Um, so, you know, this is something that, that has uh, gone on. And of course, even uh, beyond, you know, these uh, quite telling statements from, from their CEO. Um, the other co-founders are also from Unit 8200. They previously served in some of the companies involved previously in espionage against the United States I mentioned previously, uh, like Amdocs and Converse Infosys um, as some of their subsidiaries. Um, so, you know, honestly, this is quite significant in the context of some of these uh, now admitted Israeli, uh, you know, intelligence uh, and military policies um, that we've talked about. Why wasn't this vetted? Why was this just allowed to happen? And even beyond that, you know, Cyber Reason has been allowed to contract um, to different aspects of the U.S. military in running on highly classified databases and things like that. Uh, the potential for, for you know, espionage, and, and given some of these statements um, in the history of, of, of Israeli intelligence as a whole is, is obviously really concerning. And why are they uh, simulating, uh, in addition to that, why are they simulating, you know, with, uh, you know, U.S. government agencies that would respond to those types of controversies in terms of hacks um, you know, about uh, how martial law can be declared in the U.S. and other things like this. Um, it's quite disturbing, especially when you take into context that um, essentially this uh, merger that has gone over over the past years between Israel's high-tech sector and the military is openly praised by U.S. neocons, um, including, uh, you know, Paul Singer, who I mentioned earlier, uh, created Startup Nation Central, He's a major funder of Republican candidates, including uh, Marco Rubio, uh, just to name one. But uh, one of the one of the main, uh, a big donor to the Republican Party. You know, this is um, this is this is something that I think definitely um, uh, deserves attention because people in his orbit, like Dan Senor, uh, who used to run the Foreign Policy Initiative uh, with. Um, Robert Kagan and Bill Kristol wrote a whole book praising the civil military fusion concept and saying that if the U.S. wants a better high tech sector, they should essentially do that and follow the Israel model. Um, you know, obviously that uh, if you take it too far, uh, quickly becomes a dictatorship. And, you know, with this war on domestic terror that's being launched directly in partnership with uh, governments like Israel and the Five Eyes countries, you know, this is really um, a slippery slope we're on. And a lot of these issues issues aren't even being discussed, even independent media, um, though I think part of that is because that, you know, the new news cycle is so much, but it's important to point out that mainstream media, though, you know, 
there are obvious cases over the past several years where they, uh, they, they create or publish stories that are false or intended to mislead. Uh, oftentimes what's more damaging is their refusal to cover things, period, and allow things to just essentially be permanently memory holder, just totally kept out of uh, the public's view. And so there really needs to be a big effort here to talk about the stuff because it definitely uh, doesn't look good. And of course, that initial 2019 simulation that Cyber Reason conducted wasn't their only one. Uh, they, they have come to do them quite regularly with all different types of um, high-ranking U.S. agencies and in different scenarios. Um, and, uh, you know, I honestly think it's, uh, it's it's quite concerning, especially in the context of these focuses on hacks on critical infrastructure, when we're constantly being warned by the media that such hacks will take place and that governments like Iran will do it. Uh, and of course, if you remember back <laughs> to the 60 Minutes interview given by then head of Mossad, uh, Mayor Dagan, he was openly saying that Israel's government has been looking for ways to get the U.S. to attack to attack Iran first, so Israel doesn't have to. Um, you know, we had to take all of this stuff into consideration. I think. Absolutely. So that that was a lot. <laughs> that was a lot. I tend to do that. So. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. That's okay. I want to try to break it down a little bit more. Um, I want to take a, a little one step back to uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Um, you know, last year you described Isabel Maxwell as Israel's backdoor into Silicon Valley. Um, Isabel Maxwell is, of course, you've you know reported about reported about her, the daughter of media baron and Israeli super spy Robert Maxwell, and the sister of the notorious sex offender Ghislaine Maxwell. Um, can you tell us a little bit more um, about her and about Robert Maxwell's spying for Israel? Because I think. It's so important to, you know, point these people out because you can't talk about Israel's national security state and the emerging of the U.S. national security state without talking about these sex offenders. Right. So in the in the case of Robert Maxwell, what happened there with the Promise software scandal is that he was picked by the head of the now defunct Israeli uh, intelligence agency, Lakem. Uh, the head of that at the time was Rafi Aiton, who was the mastermind of this whole thing. He uh, basically arranged the bugging, the insertion of a backdoor into the software uh, that was revolutionary at the time in the context of managing a government and intelligence databases, uh, sort of a prototype to what Palantir um, is today in terms of its functionality. Um, and so governments uh, in different uh, 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 corporations and laboratories and things like this were very eager to use it. Um, and it was actually developed by a former NSA contractor and was uh, being used in the U.S. and then was sort of stolen um, in, in what should have been a big scandal, but it was covered up uh, by the Reagan administration. Um, but this um, Israeli uh, spy master, Rafi Aiton, essentially got wind of it and uh, created a backdoor version of it that he had Robert Maxwell uh, act as the salesperson for and go and market it around the world. To do that, Robert Maxwell uh, created a comp uh, several front companies to do this, and uh, the one he used in the U.S. to sell it specifically to Los Alamos National Laboratories and some of these highly classified U.S. laboratories so Israel could spy on them. Um, U.S. scientific and technology research with a focus specifically um, on the nuclear program. Uh, both Isabel Maxwell and Christine Maxwell, his daughters, worked there, uh, including in leadership positions. So they were actively involved in this front company. Um, 
at the time that scandal was taking place, which is pretty significant. Um, after his death in 1991, Isabel Maxwell openly admits that she essentially um, inherited his portfolio of Israeli intelligence contacts, including with people like Shimon Peres, uh, former heads of Mossad, and people like that, who we know even later on, uh, she admits to having been close to. She started making regular trips between the U.S. and Israel, and as a way to sort of rebuild her father's legacy, she and her sister Christine created a company called Magellan, well, called the McKinley Group, but their first product, really, their main product was Magellan, which was sort of an early search engine for the internet, and that in 1995 made major deals uh, with Microsoft specifically, um, and of course, Ghislaine Maxwell had a major stake in this company as well, so it, eventually it was sold um, to another company in 1996, Ghislaine Maxwell made a profit of that. It's not clear if that was used to finance the sexual blackmail activities she was conducting with Epstein at the time. Uh, but Isabel Maxwell uh, was the vice president of that company and was directly responsible for establishing relationships between that company and large tech companies to get them to use Magellan services. Um, and one of those was Microsoft, and she apparently developed some sort of odd relationship uh, with Bill Gates during that period, uh, which she references later. Um, in, a, in a which is referenced later in an article in The Guardian in 2000. She starts talking about uh, Bill Gates, and uh, she normally sounds slightly British. She adopts a Southern Bell U.S. accent and starts to purr when talking about Bill Gates, according to the uh, the Guardian <laughs> journalist of the time. It's a uh, Pretty weird. Uh, but anyway, uh, that <laughs> is significant because in, in the context of the fact that um, after this company was sold in 1996, she was headhunted by a tech company uh, that whose product essentially ran in the background of, uh, of email service providers, including later Microsoft's Hotmail, um, after another uh, merger, essentially, or, or uh, alliance, I guess you could say, with Microsoft then that had been founded by veterans of the IDF. Um, and they specifically wanted Isabel Maxwell to work there because she was Robert Maxwell's daughter. Um, of course, Robert Maxwell having uh, his, his, some of his biographers have referred to him as Israel's super spy, not just because of his involvement with Israeli intelligence, not just with the Promise software scandal, but a host of other things. Um, and not just targeting the U.S., targeting various governments. Um, so, you know, all of this is pretty significant. And of course, he uh, uh, stole... Um, uh, money from the pension fund of people that worked for media outlets he owned in order to finance Mossad activities in Europe, among other things. I mean, just tons of scandals um, with this guy. So they specifically seek out Isabel Maxwell because she is uh, directly, you know, the daughter of her father and admits that she had inherited this portfolio um, of intelligence contacts uh, from her father. And she's and when she joins this company, which is called ComTouch, um, she says, oh, yeah, I decided to join because it's an opportunity to continue my father's involvement in Israel. It's a direct quote from her. So um, that's pretty significant. So anyway, she goes along um, and forges major deals with Microsoft. It's actually Microsoft that puts ComTouch on the map. Uh, according to Isabel Maxwell, uh, thanks both to uh, the investments of Paul Allen and Microsoft at the last minute to prevent a collapse of their IPO. Uh, it's not very clear why they would invest in ComTouch because uh, before their IPO, uh, they just recorded millions of dollars in losses every year. We didn't turn a profit and had uh, were considered a obscure software developer, but it was this involvement 
of Microsoft's co-founders that really led um, there to be some uh, traction for this company uh, that appears that it very easily could have been weaponized by Israeli intelligence services, given all the stuff that we've talked about uh, today. And thanks to this partnership with Microsoft was running in the background, had access to all of the information passing through Microsoft's hotmail servers, um, uh, uh, potentially allowing emails uh, to be surveilled and spied on um, during that period. Um, and of course, she later leaves and goes through a host of, um, you know, uh, running a host of different um, is Israeli based technology companies. Uh, but what's more interesting is that she later got involved in things like uh, the Israeli Venture uh, Network um, in the Shimon Perez Center and things like this expressly in efforts to sort of um, Further, this policy I mentioned earlier uh, to merge Israeli national security uh, founded tech companies with uh, Silicon Valley in the United States. Um, so, you know, she seems to be intimately involved in this particular policy that we've been talking about uh, today with, uh, you know, uh, former ministers of defense, former prime ministers. Um, of Israel and was, you know, recruited into this expressly to continue her father's involvement of Israel, which of course is a legacy of espionage. Incredible web of people that you have brought together to expose uh, Whitney. Um, I really appreciate you joining us today to talk about both Pegasus um, and Toka and how they were developed by ex-spies and Israeli intelligence units like, um, you know, 8200, um, who, you know, both of these companies and software, these backdoor softwares are basically being used as mass surveillance tools um, and being weaponized by the state of Israel um, to conduct its dirty work to promote uh, its foreign policy and to target dissent. And I think it's extremely concerning, as you very brilliantly laid out, that if we are truly to care about our civil liberties, our First Amendment rights of free speech, since this is being weaponized to also target BDS activism and any sort of dissent um, that is critical of U.S. foreign policy and Israeli foreign policy um, and uh, neoliberal, the neoliberal establishment. So we really have to be concerned about all of these aspects um, and bring attention uh, to the intersection of the Israeli national security state uh, with the U.S. national security state. Whitney Webb, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I think these topics are really important to cover and you know, like I said at the end of my article for Mint Press, if people truly care about the implications of the NSO group and Pegasus scandal, they should care about the entire market that markets tools like this. Pegasus is just one of many tools doing this um, and just one of many tools that has been weaponized by, by the Israeli government for this express purpose. So we should definitely uh, expand our, our concern to not just include Pegasus. So yeah, thank you for allowing me to bring this info to uh, a wider audience. Absolutely. And I just want to thank you, Whitney, for bringing attention to this, for covering this. And you did mention that not a lot of independent media outlets do cover this. Mint Press has been covering this through your help. Well, I didn't include you <laughs> in of course, that at all. Of course, yeah. through, through Whitney Webb's uh, writing and investigations. And also, um, you can find another interview that she did. I mentioned it a couple times with Loki on our YouTube channel um, and on our website. And of course, this podcast is a video, you know, it's available in video and also um, in audio format um, on iTunes and Spotify. So you can find this uh, interview on our YouTube channel, on our website at mintpressnews.com and also on Spotify and iTunes under Mintcast. Thank you all so much for joining us today.